Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. Today is our third episode where we were joined by Joe Martinetto, the Chief Operating Officer of Charles Schwab. Charles Schwab is one of the largest financial institutions in the world with over 33,000 employees, 32 million brokerage accounts, and following its recent merger with TD Ameritrade, more than $7.5 trillion in assets under management. While leading operations of this mammoth firm, Joe is also overseeing the entire TDA acquisition. In our conversation with Joe, we hear his perspective on the broader economic system, with focuses on leadership, career development, assessing risk, and financial technology including DeFi and cryptocurrency. We also get a unique look into what it's like to oversee their enormous merger. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let us know what you think on LinkedIn, Instagram, or shoot us an email at hello at scholarsoffinance.org. And don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review, and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues if you find it valuable. Awesome. And we are live. Uh, Joe, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. How are you today? I'm great, and thank you for uh, having me on. I'm looking forward to this. Likewise, likewise. Where does this call find you today? Oh, I'm up in San Francisco today, uh, working remotely across the street from the office. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. Getting back in soon, I hope. Let's hope, though. Yeah, I think uh, as a company, we've announced we're going to let people start coming in voluntarily in uh, July. And then by October, we're going to start trying to get people back into the office. So we're all, I think, looking forward to being able to see our colleagues in person and, and share a little bit of that that you know, spirit of, of what makes the company what it is. It's, uh, it's exciting. We've got a lot of people who have never worked in a Schwab managed facility between the number of people we've hired since the start of the pandemic, plus the couple of acquisitions we've done and are in the process of integrating. Um, it's, it's kind of a whole new world for a lot of folks to, to come back. And we're really excited to spend some time talking to them about what Schwab and what's our culture and how do we maintain it. So it's, it's going to be an interesting time. That's great. That's awesome. Um, wishing you the best. I'm excited for you. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are either jealous or excited as well um, as they get back additionally um, to their own offices. Yeah, um, yeah, Joe, I'm so excited to have you I today. Say, I think there'll be a little bit of strain here as people start going back for a while, but I, my, my guess is once they kind of get over the first couple of days, it'll, it'll be back into a rhythm again pretty fast. <laughs> great, great. Um, well, I am so happy to have you on the podcast, Joe. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, my hope today, as we've discussed, is to have a bit of a conversation for our listeners uh, about your career arc um, your sort of leadership over time at Charles Schwab and, and even before Charles Schwab. Talk a little bit about the evolution of financial technology since you are deeply integrated in leading uh, Schwab's technology efforts and, and pay really close attention to financial technology. And if we have time, would love to ask you a little bit about the TD Ameritrade acquisition, one of the largest mergers in recent financial history, um, which I understand you're leading. Um, so 
everyone that's listening, I'm sure, is really excited to hear more about you and, and your story. So if you want to just start us off by sharing a little bit about your background, sort of your story, how you've come to be where you are today in a few minutes, uh, we can start there. Sure. Happy to. So I um, grew up in Los Angeles area. Um, you know, things were very different back in, in those days. I, I laugh with my kids. Um, my college tours were anywhere I could drive myself and get home that night. So uh, not, not that I didn't land at a great school, but I went to college at what was then Claremont Men's College, is now Claremont McKenna College, and uh, studied mathematics and economics. I uh, graduated from school back in the early 80s uh, when a lot of people with the, the degrees that I was getting were uh, going on to work in the defense industry. This was during the Reagan administration, the buildup of, of defense again. And uh, I had done some project work while I was in school and figured out that that whole Department of Defense uh, need to know basis probably wasn't going to be the best place for me to spend a career. So I took an internship at a bank and worked there for a couple of years and went back to business school and filled in all of the practical stuff I didn't take in college. So all of the accounting and finance that I could take in the couple of years I was there, um, went back into banking and you know, spent a, a decade at what was then First Interstate, was acquired by Wells Fargo. Spent a couple of years after that at, at Transamerica and then um, found my way to Charles Schwab, um, went into Schwab as the treasurer and moved through a series of roles there from treasurer. I was the uh, retail business line CFO for a while. I um, went back into the treasury job and picked up financial planning and some of our financial MIS work. And then um, when the CFO before me retired, I stepped into that role and did that for 10 years. And then, oh, what is this, about four years ago, I finally gave up the CFO title after 40 quarters of filing 10Ks and 10Qs and moved into a more operational job. And uh, a couple of years ago, became the chief operating officer. And that's what I'm doing now. So um, because of that that role, I think I didn't have a whole lot of choice. Once we did the acquisition of, of TD Ameritrade, I was either going to uh, be in charge of the deal or of the integration, or somebody else was going to have the title and my team was going to do all the work. So just seemed easier to say, okay, make me the head of the integration and, and we'll go forward from there. But that's kind of the trajectory of, of you know, what I've spent my career uh, and how I got to where I am. It's absolutely incredible to hear, Joe, uh, the progression, first and foremost. Second, I think the intentionality, the thoughtfulness that went behind some of your early career decisions. Um, you had mentioned going back to business school to fill in some of the gaps that you needed to fill in right, to continue your career in finance. And when you look at the world today, I'm wondering where you think young people or even professionals two, three, five, ten years into their finance career, um, where you think that they should be focusing, right, really to, to maximize the value of their learning and their potential. Yeah, I mean, finance is a, a wonderful thing to pick up, but um, I would say these days you really need to be marrying it up with some deeper understanding of some highly analytical uh, skills, whether it's it's purely mathematics or something related. And in particular, something um, in the computer science area, you, you've got to know something about how data is created, stored, manipulated, analyzed, and you can put those things together. 
you'll be you know, valuable and important and have a lot of opportunities as, as you're starting out. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a different world than, than when I was coming out of school, but those, those skills are even more important today than they were was it, 30 years ago, 35 years ago. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. And increasingly we're seeing our students at Scholars of Finance have one, two, three, four CS classes on their resumes. They know two, three, four programming languages. Uh, definitely seeing it. And I think you're spot on, especially as we get into conversations about financial technology and the evolution of the financial system itself. I think it's so important. Before we get there, I still want to ask one other question about your early career. Um, you entered college and finance without the family background of some of your peers. Um, in a keynote that you had shared at your, at your alma mater back in 2016, you mentioned this. And I'm wondering, how did you end up identifying the right career strategy on your own? Are there any lessons that might apply to today? Luck and the help of others, I'd say we're probably the biggest drivers that um, I, I, and a fair dose of fear back there for motivation that I, I, you know, my parents weren't going to let me starve, but I certainly didn't have a trust fund to fall back on. So uh, you know, trying to get a career where I knew I was going to be able to make enough money to pay my bills and hopefully be able to afford a family and, and provide for them. Uh, certainly factored into it. So trying to figure out you know, where do people with my skill set actually get paid to, to do work. Um, yeah, a couple of, of uh, professors at school were helpful at pointing me in the right direction and getting me interviews so that I could you know, land a job doing something that you know, might help move me forward. Um, and, and, you know, beyond that, just, you know, making, making relationships and contacts and building up some mentors to help and point you in the right direction that you know, at every stage of my, my career, I've been fortunate to be able to identify some people who have, have been willing to help teach me, train me, point me in the right direction, give me some thoughts and insights that were really valuable to, to allow me to kind of sort out where I should be aspiring to head if I didn't have an ability to, to see it directly myself. So it's, it's, it's a combination of things. Um, you know, my wife, my wife is pretty good at pointing out that I will often say that, that I've just been really lucky and really fortunate. And she points out that I also worked really hard to put myself in the place where you know, that good luck would pay off. And she's not wrong about that. That that's certainly something that I think is important for people that have aspirations. Hard work's going to be a part of it more than likely. But um, yeah, it, it's for me. It's it's been a lot of uh, teachers, mentors, people helping me um, through the years, and you know, I try to do the same for anybody who asks for me now to give back a little bit. Mm. Um, I can attest to that that you've been paying it forward. You, now you've been mentoring me for for some time, and I've definitely benefited from it a lot. I think my my notes doc from our mentorship meetings is now like twenty pages long. Um, and every time we have our sort of monthly mentorship call, I go back to my team with like six different ideas for how we can improve things. And it's been working. So thank you for that. Um, I feel a lot of pressure now. I'm probably going to run out of material soon. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep coming up with questions. I'll keep coming up with more novel questions, I promise. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Um, and I, I was thinking about this a little bit preparing for our conversation, um, how personable you are, how approachable you are. 
And you had mentioned in, in, a, in a talk that you were chosen for a leadership role early on, partly because of your ability to work well with everyone involved. One of your former coworkers described you as direct, kind, and supportive. Now, everyone wants to be kinder, and I'm wondering if you've seen people who make significant progress in this. And if so, what's helped them or what helped you become a better team player? Kind is a word that I don't, I don't know if that's actually entirely accurate, right? I mean, I think that's maybe a byproduct of some of the other things that, that I have found help to make me successful. And again, there's no single formula here. And I, I certainly don't want to have myself made out as some kind of corporate angel or something like that. Um, I, I do think, though, that from, from fairly early on in my career, it's treating people with respect. And it sounds a bit like a cliche to say that it's that treat them how you want to be treated, but treating people um, be polite and treat them with respect. And more importantly, if, if you need to learn how to listen the right way and listening isn't just about hearing the other person so that you can refute them or argue with them. And really the, the most important way you, you want to listen to people, and let's face it, in all of our jobs, we work with the cream of the crop. We work with some really smart people, and they probably have some pretty good ideas. And a lot of those ideas are probably things that didn't come to mind for you. And so when you're really trying to get to the best outcome rather than essentially winning points versus some of your other you know, teammates, um, Listening in a way that allows you to be influenced becomes really important. So it's not just to say that, yeah, I heard you or, you know, attempt to move them to your position, but it's really engaging with somebody in a way that says, you make a good point. I need to change how I'm thinking about this so that we can get to a better outcome for everyone. And, you know, I think if I boil it down, that's probably been the more important trait rather than kindness. I think. It might be perceived as kindness because I, I generally do try to be you know, polite with people and, and treat them respectfully. But I think longer term, more more impact is made in how I interact with people, which is generally that I, I try to maintain that openness to, to being influenced because you know, these people have really great ideas and it helps move all of us ahead. So I think it's a combination of things, but it's 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 a little bit more complex than just being nice. <laughs> right. Thank. I appreciate that. And you emphasize the importance often uh, of serving one's subordinates by properly leading. Um, some invert that formula, but I'm curious what kind of decision-making and ownership do you think that leaders should provide their teams? Yeah. If you want to be a leader, that implies that people are going to follow you. Right. I mean, so that's, that's, how do you build followership becomes really, in some respects, the most important question of what kind of leader do you want to be? So you can be hierarchical and give orders in certain kinds of organizations. And as long as you've got all the answers, you're likely going to be successful in, in that kind of a structure. It's, it's not going to work for everyone. And it's never been something that I thought was probably the best approach. So and to me, it's it's whether it's actually true servant leadership, which you know, in many cases, the, you, you understand that you are, what you're doing is really trying to 
make your team more effective. I spent a lot of time trying to think about what are the obstacles they're facing? What are the resources they need? How do I help them break down those challenges so that they can be more effective? And how, what, how do we understand where each other's boundaries are drawn? What are the decisions you can make? And knowing that if you make them, you'll have my full support, even if that's not exactly the decision I might have made, right? And, and you know, letting people know that they have the latitude to do that and you're going to support them if they do. And you know that that means that you are going to support them. You're not going to second guess them. You're not going to question it down the road. Um, you're you're going to let it evolve and you know see how it works out. Because again, I don't have the the magic uh, eight ball that's going to tell me exactly the right answer. That that you know is the only way to get something done. Um, you know those people are working with their teams and trying to do the same things I'm doing, and sometimes their teams are going to need different answers and different motivation than what I need to apply to the people I'm working with. So it's you know it's a process, but it it, it has worked I think well for me and and in the organization that I've chosen to spend the bulk of my career in. Um, I'm not sure that it it works uniformly for everyone, but. I do have to say it's it's a lot easier to lead people who want to follow you and feel inspired and can see and understand the strategy, feel like you're sharing it with them, setting direction that they can attain without giving them orders about how to get there. And all of these things I think contribute to you know, how do you how do you build teams of people that want to follow and help support that vision and you know feel empowered to do so. I appreciate you sharing sort of the complexity and a lot of the nuance that goes behind it. It's not simple. It's not a simple, straightforward formula necessarily. Um, for different people, there are different approaches that are important. Um, and there's sort of this balance that you have to strike between offering direction and guidance while also off empowering and offering autonomy and, and latitude, as you, as you said. Um, in that same keynote speech I mentioned earlier, you fielded a, fielded a question about trade-offs and sacrifices. And work-life balance uh, is common, commonly talked about today. And oftentimes, uh, there are places where conventional wisdom can be misapplied. And I'm wondering if there are any places where you feel the framing of work-life balance falls short, um, or how you think financial services firms should balance serving their customers while also protecting employees' interests. So work-life balance is one of those loaded questions that... Um, yeah, I, I, I often, you know, you have to take what I'm about to say with a little bit of a grain of salt because I'll, I'll try to circle back to what I think people generally mean by it. But to me, and if, if you're in a job, you really enjoy working with people that you, you like to work with and you, you trust and respect, you, know, you have one life, you're living it, right? And if you're living it while you're at work or you're living it while you're at home or you're living it while you're on vacation, it's it's life and when you're working it's work but it's life right so i think for me the trick has been i don't draw really hard lines around work-life balance so it's not for me it's like how many hours did i work this week or how many hours was i in the office or if i got to do something on a weekend to get caught up but you know i needed to go run an errand so i i did it and it's it's not it's it's 
a lot less rigid and defined because I really like what I do. I like why I'm doing it. I support our purpose and I find real value in it. And so it's, it's more around getting everything that I want to get done, done than it is around trying to define lines that, you know, say this is work and this is life. Right? Well, life is life and you know, make the most of it while you're living it, whether you're at work or at home or wherever you have to be. Um, now, I, I realize that some people will probably take great exception to that because it sounds like I'm a workaholic and work full time. You know, that that's my choice or my sickness, however you want to define it. But, um, yeah, I, I do think in that context for people that, that, you know, want to have bigger division, then they need to think about how they're going to structure it and what trade-offs they're going to make in the process of achieving that. So. Um, if you really want, you know, a huge division between, you know, when I leave work, I'm leaving work and I don't want to be bothered on my weekends, I'm sure you can find jobs that will do that. But if, you know, there are others that are willing to do that same job and maybe stick around a little longer because they picked up some extra project or put in some extra time on the weekend, learning some new skills, they may advance ahead of you and you have to understand that that's a choice you're making and be okay with that and really be okay with it. And it's, it's not, I'm not, I mean, this is not a value judgment. If that's what's really important and what you want to do, that's great. Live your life that way, but make sure you understand the trade-off that you're making. And it's not any different than people that you know, don't want to relocate for a job. Right. And it's, it's, if you get offered a great job, but it's in a location that's not where you are now, and you maybe you know have to debate whether you want to go or not, if you're not willing to make that move and somebody else gets the job, you got to be happy for that individual and support them in that role and be satisfied with yourself that you didn't take it, right? You can't be filled with regrets of the choices you didn't make. And you know, that's that's one of those really important things that I think everybody needs to be thinking through is is what are your objectives? What are the trade-offs you're willing to make? Which ones aren't you willing to make? And really get good with them. It's, it's you know, otherwise, I, I don't know how people go through life, right? I mean, they're going to be dealing with these, these dichotomies in their brain constantly that yeah, it sounds like a formula for unhappiness to me. <laughs> mm, I, right. I love it. Just know what's important to you. Know what brings you energy, fulfillment, what you're passionate about. And Put, invest your time there and just understand the implications of your choices and decisions. Right. Um, and I, I appreciate your approach, um, building and leading scholars of finance full time. I've never felt so engaged and fulfilled day to day working on anything in my life. Granted, I'm still only 30 years old. I'm a child in the grand scheme of things. Um, but I, I do work more than most. Um, but I, a lot of my friends and peers would say, Rouse has more energy. He seems more fulfilled, more passion-driven than most too. Um, I don't feel like I'm being burnt out because I'm doing work that I love and I get, you know, get a chat with you. I have people in my life that I get to spend time with. You you find a balance that works for you. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, if it brings you joy, why would you want to cut it off, right? Just for some, you know, concept of work-life balance. Right, right. Sort of the normative 40-hour work week that someone right. somewhere 150 years ago decided was the right number <laughs> and it gets, you know, again this, this decision for me gets a lot easier as you find something that you actually really enjoy doing right because then it doesn't right. become sort of this hard choice of 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, oh, I, you know, I didn't leave the job that's it's you know grinding me to a nub, right? But it, again, if you're working in a job that you feel like is grinding you to a nub, do something about that, right? Go out and make the change, find another role, do something that gives you more, right? Right? Because right. that one life, it's it's short and quick. Um, find something mm-hmm. you like doing because you spend a lot of time at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate I appreciate you sharing and something that you've talked to me about how much you like and you love even on this podcast now is how much you enjoy the work that you do. So I'd love to actually shift into sort of the next broad topic of our discussion, which is the evolution of financial technology, something I know you're very passionate about and care a lot about. Um, you, your decision, you decided to limit exposure to risky assets like CDOs, um, and that helped insulate Schwab against elements of the Great Recession the 2008-2009 financial meltdown. And you and the leadership team um, later, of course, were vindicated for this, right? Like it came, the tail of the tape was that you made a great choice. Um, but at that time, I'm wondering if that approach was ever criticized before the crisis vindicated that decision. Uh, yes, it was. Um, there, there were certainly some people that were looking um, at, at the choices that we were making and would, would point out what some of our competitors were doing and would, would you know, particularly among the, the ownership community, um, certain, certain individuals would look up and say, you guys are just missing the boat. People are getting you know, way ahead of you. Look at how much money they're making. Why aren't you doing this? And you know, they, they didn't completely agree with us that you know, we kept looking up and saying, you know, we've, we've built a model um, very intentional that we, we have a very strong purpose at Schwab um, to serve our clients and to operate you know, through clients' eyes is the, the strategy. And to the extent that um, we want to be there to fulfill our purpose and to serve our clients, we can't take really large and outsized risks that um, have the potential to damage the franchise or put our ability to serve our clients at risk. And so some of the choices that we made were really consistent with those, those cultural philosophies. And so you know, there wasn't a lot of internal um, pushback or, or challenges around the, the positioning there was definitely some external pushback around the positioning. Um, and again, we would go to great pains to try to explain to people that, you know, what we were doing was not just um, what we thought was you know, best for our, serving our purpose, but also what we thought was best for investors and, and explaining why that, you know, when you look at um, banks and their multiples versus, you know, brokerage firms or wealth managers and their multiples. There, there are a lot of, of reasons that uh, brokers and wealth managers tend to have higher valuations, particularly on the retail side of the organizations, but um, has a lot to do with the uh, growth potential as well as um, the risk capacity, right? And so mm-hmm. if you're going to take those large outsized bets and you're going to surprise the market from time to time with some pretty big losses, you're going to, you know, your, your large gains will be discounted and your large losses will result in discounts to your multiple, right? And so what we chose to focus on was serving our clients really well 
hoping they would continue to bring us more money that, that, that will allow the franchise to continue to grow and invest and minimize those, those potentials for surprises that had the, the opportunity down the road of damaging the multiple. And we really believed we had the right formula to create the maximum amount of, or the, you know, at least a, a healthy amount of shareholder value over time by, by sticking to that model. And over time, I'd say you know, that, that was validated. Um, but you know, there were points in time where people were looking at some of those competing models and saying, boy, you know, if you overlaid what you do with some of these strategies, you'd make a lot more money. And in the time, we, we probably would have. But over the long run, I'm not sure we would have created you know, nearly as much shareholder value as we have uh, you know, pursuing the alternative strategy. Right, right. And I think given Schwab's just sheer size, Schwab's a mammoth firm with over 7% market share of individual investing. Um, I mean, now, and we'll talk about the, the acquisition later, but now a roughly $6 trillion asset uh, under management base between Schwab and, and TD Ameritrade. Um, I'm glad that Schwab and, and you and the executive leadership team were thinking long-term, thinking conservatively, mit mitigating and minimizing risk. And when you look at that, that philosophy and that approach over time, I mean, I was just, I went on the website and read the history of Charles Schwab as a firm. It's wild that in one person's lifetime, something started from nothing. And now you have a firm with over three and soon about $6 trillion in assets. Um, so clearly the philosophy can work. Um, and when you, when you look at, you mentioned the assessing risk profile, when you look at the evolution of financial products, like, like CDOs, now options, derivatives, other things, um, I'm curious how you assess the risk profile of some of the current financial offerings in the market. And is there anything that you would urge caution? people to take caution against in what has been quite a bullish market with record highs in the DG, DJI recently? Yeah. So again, it's, it's, um, I don't want to poke at any one individual company's products or structures, but I can offer some kind of generalized advice here that, um, yeah, some of, there are some really smart people on wall street and, um, a lot of these products start out with really the best of intentions. It's to create things that really fit people's risk profiles, make sense to help, you know, take specific um, exposures or to reduce specific exposures, and, and they're done really well. And you know, they, they grow and morph and change, and, and they become more complex. Um, a lot of them are based on you know, some pretty hardcore mathematical underpinnings and modelings to try to really understand them and value them. And so I mean, the first um, kind of rule of thumb, I would say folks would be um, wise to, to uh, heed would be never enter into a trade where you don't understand exactly what you're buying and you can't personally put a value on it. So I mean, that's the easiest way to get into a position that's going to cost you money that you didn't understand is to uh, you know buy something that, that you can't model and you can't value. So you know regardless of what the instrument's called or what the structure is, make sure that you actually understand how it works, what it's doing, how it's valued. and you know, if you can't get all of that, then don't touch it. Um, and that's probably the single best rule of thumb that you know I learned that really early from some really smart people and you know, I've, I've 
followed that rule as religiously as I could through my career. And I have to tell you, um, that one has saved me more times than, than I can count when you see people put some really complex stuff that, you know, it looks like, you know, it, it's understandable. But man, when you get out to some of the edge cases and you see what some of these exposures turn into, um, it's really good to be, be cautious around that. Um, yeah, it's it Schwab for us on the retail side. It's 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 more of a um, trying to make sure that there's no single individual that's getting themselves to a place where they're going to do real damage to the firm. That it's it's not our job to control what certain um, individual investors would want to do with their portfolios or the risk exposures they're trying to take. What we're trying to do is make sure that they're not playing with house capital. So, you know, they're not taking risks that we're going to end up having to cover. Um, so, you know, we run a lot of scenarios over client portfolios to make sure that they're not getting overextended in a way that, that ultimately would make us uncomfortable if something happened in the market. And so, you know, I, I hope they're applying the, the same kinds of uh, caution to their portfolios that we try to apply to ours. Um, I can't say they always do. And sometimes there are shocks and you, know, you see people make and, and lose um, lots of money sometimes. But, um, you know, that, that's that's their right with their positions as long as they don't somehow end up you know, putting the firm at risk as a result of that. I appreciate it. In short, be very, very educated on the instruments that you are purchasing um, and the exposures you're taking. Yeah, you said it better than I did right there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I would, I, would, uh, I would challenge that. I think you said it far more articulately, but I'll try to summarize the key point um, and a conversation maybe for a later episode, but at some point, um, would love to just unpack even my own personal thinking on what's happened in the options market and the derivatives market, um, even to shorting stock. When you think about how financial markets initially came to be, it was to deploy capital and value to its most productive uses that impact and affect the real economy. Um, right, really capital markets, it was to match capital with opportunity. Um, and this was agriculture, this was services, this was products that improved people's lives. Early on, it's education, it's healthcare, it's innovation. Um, and when you see just how much financial activity now is occurring purely between financial entities with no real bearing on the, the real economy, um, it can it can be a little frustrating. It's as if Wall Street sort of collectively has lost its way. Um, but not everyone, of course. I mean, that's why scholars of finance exists, right? There are lots of really thoughtful, purpose-driven, mission-based people in finance who wanted to play capital in ways that make the world better, solve problems, create stability, um, ultimately grow the pie and, and help distribute that pie in a way where everyone can have a decent life. Um, so I, it's something I'd love to dive into in depth at some point with you. Yeah, it, it is probably part of a longer conversation because then you got to start stripping back, you know, what's the underlying on all of these things and you know, how do these pieces get put together and what's done with the even shorting stock, right? I mean, you're not shorting just to bet against a single company. You're probably then raising cash out of that that short that you're going to redeploy into some other um, yeah, opportunity. So, right. I mean, it's the classic, you know, right. they, they, you know, not to pick on companies, but, you know, Coke and Pepsi, right? 
short one, buy more of the other because you think one's a better move than the other. I mean, you're putting capital into the market and you're leveraging your investment. Many would say that you're adding liquidity to a market and helping price discovery. So right, right. Thing of a valuable market purpose um, and putting that kind of a trade on. So it's, 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 yeah, it's not as simple as just, you know, certain instruments aren't good um, as it is, you know, how do they get deployed to really sort of facilitate, um, you know, that, that real adding liquidity to markets and bringing the, the best of thinking into price discovery so that assets are valued as close to reality as they can be at any point in time. So capital goes to the best place. Right, right. Um, that said, as we're talking about capital going to the best place, um, there has been some massive innovation on where capital is going and, and how it is moving between places, namely cryptocurrency, um, decentralized finance. Uh, you know, of course, now about a decade old is a movement, uh, Bitcoin, namely and a number of others. Um, there's a ton of energy going towards fintech. Um, you look at Coinbase recently held, holding their IPO and as of this morning had a market cap of about $58 billion dollars. Um, Schwab has thus far largely decided, as I understand, against offering cryptocurrency-based assets for investors. Um, is that accurate? Um, and if so, do, is it because cryptocurrencies you think are a risky investment? Um, if so, what do you think is the main source of that risk? Um, mercurial market forces, just the specter of future regulation, something else. Would love to hear your thoughts uh, on crypto right now. Yeah, it has a lot more to do with regulation than it has with the riskiness of the asset. That you know, again, it's not our job to pass judgment on you know, whatever trade our clients want to make. It's more to make certain assets available to allow them to to make those trades, trades, and make those decisions on their own. Um, you know, I think if you want someone like a Schwab to participate actively in um, the cryptocurrency market, we're going to have to see some clarity around regulation. Just the, you know, the fact that it's not, it, it hasn't been clarified what kind of an asset actually is it? Is it a currency? Is it an asset? How is it taxed? What kind of withholding? Um, uh, if you're going to do it inside of a financial services firm, uh, what, 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 you know, anti-money money laundering regulation structures apply to it. And if you think of the nature of um, a lot of those currencies, by definition, they were made to be crypto, right? So you can see the transaction, but you can't always trace um, the provenance of the funds that led to the transaction. So all of these things you know, lead to some degree of complication. Uh, and at this point, I, I think we've concluded we could probably do something fairly simple in this space, but it's hard for us without some clarity on regulation to see how we would really enhance client experience and do something that's, that's you know, unique and disruptive, which if we're going to make that kind of a move is what we would like to do. And so, you know, we've been a little slower as we continue to watch how the environment around it evolves. We would really love to see some clarity around regulation so that you know people like us could participate in that marketplace and feel like we had you know comfort around some of the, the regulatory issues if we do. So and it, it's it's you know with with anything new, um, it takes a little while to get some of this stuff sorted out. Uh, and I, I, I really 
I think we, we would really encourage you know, whoever it is that's going to step up in the, the regulatory scheme, take control of the asset class to the extent that you can call it that and you know, show us what, uh, you know, what, what are the regs that, are, that apply explicitly so that we can make sure that we're doing it in a way that, that is, is compliant with what the expectations are for you know, a firm like ours. Thanks for sharing. I appreciate the insight. And I'm curious, uh, and this might sound a bit glib as a question, but the market cap um, in decentralized finance um, across cryptocurrencies has increased roughly tenfold in the past year. Um, do you think it's a passing curiosity or do you think DeFi has a future in the financial sphere? Yeah, yeah, I think time's going to tell. Um, I think a lot of, of what passes out there um, and it, a lot of it ultimately turns, I, I would say, into technologies that might be used to enhance efficiency of, of processing. But I think um, investors are still going to want to have people that they know and trust um, caring for their assets and helping them manage them. And so, you know, kind of in the best of all worlds for investors, it helps to break down costs and build more scale that, you know, good firms are going to share back with their clients in the form of lower prices and better services. Um, you know, that, that's, that's, we, we talk a lot about the virtuous cycle, right? That it starts with acquiring clients that leads to growth and revenue that lets us make investments in, in better products and services that, um, you know, then, then allows us to continue to acquire more clients, right? So if, if that's all working right and we're sharing the, the value of the scale that we're building by process of growing the company, right? So the clients actually get a piece of that when, when they help drive that growth. Um, you know, that, that, that's, you know, when that flywheel is spinning, that leads to a really successful and healthy company for us. And so, you know, that, that I think is, you know, if we can keep that cycle going, um, you know, this just may be another lever that we get to pull down the road to help drive more scale that, that allows us to continue to make that investment and further democratize investing. Right. Thanks. I, I appreciate it. It makes a lot of sense. I want to ask one more sort of broad question on how you and how Schwab as a firm are thinking about financial technology. And then I want to dive into the TD Ameritrade deal. Um, but before I do this, this final question on this, um, want to understand how large firms like Schwab uh, look ahead to integrating new financial technologies into your operations and offerings, um, both because of your scale and uh, your size. And also, I'm curious how you think a firm with a more conservative approach should approach possible structural shifts in the industry like this. You know, it, it's really going to depend on how important it is to adopt the technology to be able to deliver a product or service for clients from our perspective that, um, you know, there are always going to be competing uses of, of internal capital. Uh, I, I will laugh with our CIO that, you know, no, no CIO ever gets to run on a completely modern technology stack after the first day they turn it on. And so it's always in this process of obsolescing and needing updating and, Right. So, um, you know, even, even you put serious money into modernization, you're still going to have things that are going to be set to the side while you're working on, on certain, you know, parts of your platform. So 
things that um, have an opportunity to look really kind of disruptive and those those kinds of things we try to play pay really close attention to and we will divert time money resources to being able to um, adopt those technologies and try to put them into production faster to help benefit clients other things that might be more just modernization or scale drivers are going to get assessed more against kind of the broader list of things that we could be doing. And so they may not have the same kind of rapid adoption cycle because, you know, we run a large and complex set of platforms. And so, you know, there's, there's always a bit of balance that has to occur in picking where the money's going to go. And, you know, sometimes you have things that look like really high NPV adoptions, but at the end of the day, you've got another system that's about to go out of support and you know, the money has to go to the old technology rather than going to the new thing because you know, you've got competing calls on resources and that has to be done if you want to be up and running next year. So I mean, it's, it's, it's a big Rubik's cube of how do you align the resources with the opportunities to make the investments. We do try to prioritize the stuff that's going to be most important and most visible to clients first. And then, you know, we're trading off behind that, behind the scenes. Thanks for sharing. I appreciate it. Um, obviously, at a much different scale, even at Scholars of Finance, even as we've grown from three to 17 universities, believe it or not, we have a technology stack. I'm sure people hearing that will probably laugh at me when I say it. Um, obviously, it's infinitesimal compared to what Charles Schwab has, but um, I, I'm laughing as I hear you talk about these trade-offs between the high NPV add-on versus the uh, this part that's about to go out of support um, that's about to become obsolete or be deprecated. It's a it's a real struggle those trade-off decisions, um, even at a small scale. Even at small scale, we we face those same trade-off decisions. So um, everybody how, does. Right? No, yeah, nobody. Right, the day you turn it on is the last day it was modern. <laughs> I love that. I've never heard someone say that. I love that. Um, we'll quote you on that. Um, that said, I want to move into a little bit of, about the TD Ameritrade deal. Um, one of the largest mergers and acquisitions in recent financial history. Um, feel free to correct me on any of my facts if they're off base here, but um, Schwab closed its acquisition of TD Ameritrade last year in an all stock deal valued at $22 billion uniting two of the four largest players in the RIA custody market into one mammoth company, housing roughly $6 trillion in combined assets and 28 million brokerage accounts. And as COO of Charles Schwab, you are responsible for overseeing the merger with TD Ameritrade. And with that all said, I want to hear about what that process has been like. And with Schwab and TDA both valuing their clients, what does a client-oriented merger look like? What does it look like to uphold your values and your principles as you're bringing two organizations of that size together? Sure. So I'd say there's you know, a bit like the conversation we just had, a little bit of, um, you know, they're not really competing priorities. They're just priorities that have to be reconciled that a, a chunk of the value that's going to be ascribed to the transaction is going to come from um, standardizing on a common brokerage platform as opposed to running two brokerage platforms. And so a big chunk of the work has been trying to make sure that um, you know, we, we are on a path to getting all of the accounts converted onto a single brokerage platform. 
within a reasonable period of time. Um, that was complicated a bit by what we've seen here in terms of activity since close. And we, we have already surpassed um, the volumes that we had anticipated um, would be sufficient to give us headroom for operating five years after acquisition. So you know, we have had to dramatically increase the, the scale that we're now striving for um, and the capacity that we're striving for and, and how we're thinking about delivering it. So you know, what we've gone from is kind of an old um, on-premise multiple of, of, of max volume kind of model to um, something that is much more of a statistically based leveraging um, cloud computing capabilities to get us um, more on-demand and burst capacity to, to really allow us to have you know, what we're calling a massively scalable back office platform. And so, you know, that, that has changed our thinking a little bit around how we're, we're going to end up going to market with some of, of the technology in the background. It, it won't be particularly transparent to clients, but there's a lot of work going on on how we deliver that kind of a platform. Um, on top of that, this is, um, you know, an acquisition that, that you, know, you have firms with two very complementary skill sets and strengths. So TD Ameritrade was a, a much stronger trading shop for retail and advisor clients. And so um, we're looking to bring a lot of that trading capability to bear for the entire consolidated client base. So um, things like their Thinkorswim platform or um, ThinkPipes on the advisor side or iRebal for the automated portfolio rebalancing, bringing those capabilities into that consolidated brokerage platform um, is important. But um, you know, beyond that, then it's also making sure that we're maintaining all of the relationship and wealth management and asset management and banking capabilities that Schwab brought to the deal for the benefit of the new clients coming over from, from Ameritrade, right? So it really is about the best of both worlds, but you know, getting all of that working seamlessly and ensuring that it's going to be just a really great experience for the people that, that come across um, because of the, the volumes and the, the acquisition, I mean, these are high-class problems, and, and you know, we're, we're, we're thrilled to be, be dealing with them. But we brought into scope a lot more um, things that we might have been thinking about putting a little further out, of the, out on the roadmap before we actually get to what we call client day one, which is you know, the day we bring everybody together on one platform. So um, there's a lot more digitization and automation work that's going on to ensure that clients can find and utilize all of the capabilities on their own without having to call us or chat with us, trying to make sure that, that those, those systems are easy to use, easy to find, um, and you know, just don't drive a tremendous volume of calls in. Um, one, because clients don't really want to call us, and two, trying to staff up to, to deal with a huge volume of calls for a short period of time is a really inefficient way of, of managing the business, really expensive and also not really great from a client experience perspective. So I'd say we've expanded on a couple of fronts. Um, one is on how we're thinking about scalability in the background. Uh, one is about what we're thinking about delivering on a client experience up front. We still expect to be able to complete that integration within 30 to 36 months of close. 
uh, it's going to cost us a little bit more than we had originally contemplated. The vast majority of the increase in cost is really being driven by uh, the additional work on scale and some of the additional pieces that we've chosen to bring into scope for the client experience side. But um, you know, for the long run, we think that it'll, it'll lead us to a, a much stronger platform, a much better client offering, leave us uh, much more competitive in the marketplace. And so, again, this is one of those, those choices that we made that uh, we think it's the right thing for the clients and ultimately for shareholder value for the long run to deliver the better, stronger firm a little bit further out than you know, one that's maybe not quite as good at serving clients nearer in just to get to some of the cost savings faster. Joe, thank you so much. Uh, I know we're coming to the top of the hour. If you have a few more minutes, I'd love to ask you just two more questions. Uh, sure. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Um, so this is one of the largest mergers, again, in recent financial memory. What do you think allowed your team to get the Schwab and TDA deal to the finish line successfully? Yeah, that, that's always a hard one. Um, yeah, there, there, there were, you know, I, I think some, some real benefits seen on both sides of, of putting this organization together that um, I think we had made on the Schwab side some real strides on uh, some of the building out the relationship, uh, wealth management, asset management capabilities. And clearly, um, you know, clients are heading in that direction that, um, you know, I think there, there's a lot of demand for that that has really helped us drive a lot of dollar consolidation and um, real loyalty with, with our client set. On, on the flip side, we did it a little bit at the expense of shortcutting some of the trading um, experience and in some of that trade-off. And I the TD Ameritrade had made some of the opposite decisions. They really made investments in building a really strong trading set of capabilities and um, had not made it nearly as far in some of the, the relationship practices. And so it, it was pretty easy to look up and say, boy, if we brought these things together, it would um, really create, in, in some respects, a much stronger single firm. It would, would be a fierce competitor in the marketplace for, for years to come, we certainly hope. And so and I, I give you know, both managements or uh, both, both boards um, a lot of credit for looking up, identifying that opportunity and you know, figuring out how to you know, make a deal work. Is, you know, these things are never simple and straightforward and easy. And it, it takes you know, people with, with real stick to itness and, and courage to see them all the way through. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate you sharing. It's incredibly insightful to hear, and it makes total sense uh, hearing you share it. Um, last question, and this will be a bit of a softball for you as you wrap up. Um, you've been so generous and so kind um, to give your time to Scholars of Finance. Our meetings, you've spoke to our students on several occasions. Here you are on the Investing in Integrity podcast, one of our first ever guests as we launched this podcast. Um, why have you chosen to get involved in Scholars of Finance? And for our listeners, any executives or professionals listening, why might you encourage them to get involved? Yeah, no, I, I think what you're doing is incredibly important. That you know, it, it's uh, particularly these days, without stepping over you know political or social lines here, I, I do think that just you know reminding people about the importance of 
understanding what the economic constructs are that, that underlie the growth of our economy that ultimately provides for you know, real opportunities for people to take care of themselves, provide for their families. Um, you know, it, it, it's, capitalism is not a perfect system. And, and you know, there's certainly places for government intervention to try to help you know, rub off some of those, those rough edges. But um, you know, there's not another economic system that has produced the, the kinds of gains for their, their populace as, as, as you know, the, the capitalist system has. So um, you know, helping to make sure that people understand that, you know, that there is good that comes out of you know, really thinking about how do you deploy capital? How do you use it to, to generate growth? What does that growth provide for a populace? What's the opportunities that are created in that process? What are some of the things that we need to be thinking about providing as a society to help sustain that? Um, you know, there's, there's just um, you know, a wealth of topics here that are really important. Um, and and um, you know, I think the one I, I started with, with with you folks was on ethics and finance. And again, um, you know, if, if once you get around money, you're always going to find some people that are there just for the money um, and aren't always as cognizant as, as they should be of you know, why they're there or what they're doing. And you know, trying to, to marry up that you know, that sense of what's the right thing to do with how do we do it in this field, I think is is you know just critically important. So I commend you for taking this on. I think it's just a really great um, effort and and process that you're building up here. And so you know I'm I'm you know really pleased that uh, you you found me and invited me to participate. And um, you know I've, I've been proud to be associated with with you. Um, I think you guys are doing great work. So thank you. Uh, thank you, Joe. The pleasure is all ours, truly. I'm glad you answered the email when we sent it. Um, really grateful that, that you answered and appreciate all the insights you shared with us to date. Um, we will continue to do our best to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. And can't wait to have you back again soon to talk about a lot of these topics that we've discussed today that we want to extrapolate on further. Um, I know you're busy and have a ton of meetings to get to, so we'll let you go. I just want to thank you so much, Joe. So grateful to have you on the show today and hope you have an amazing rest of your week. Can't have, wait to have you back on again soon. Oh, thank you. And I'm looking forward to listening to the rest of the series. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.